0: As an individual, you are absolutely well within your rights to think about what is just or unjust. And you're well allowed to fight for it. There were people from the United States who went to the Spanish Republican Civil War and fought against the Nazis. By all means, do that. But the moment you're leading a state, there is a greater ethical consideration uh, which is at play. Like There are people, hundreds and thousands and millions of people under you. And their well, you know, well-being and their, their safety is your prime con- concern. So you can't be bothered about what's happening and what's unjust in the world unless your interests are threatened. And that's one of the reasons why Morgenthau said that like, you know, the Second World War wasn't about uh, you know, just uh, power or liberty. It was fundamentally about the idea that we shouldn't let uh, two great powers dominate Europe and Asia. You know, uh, Germany was committing crimes before U.S. joined the fight. U.S. didn't join the fight up until it was attacked, and that was the right thing to do.
1: Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Sarab Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by...
2: Nick Solheim, the <laughs> COO
1: of American Moment. You're like, you know, drumming up on Yeah, winding up, man. It. Um, it's always the same. Uh, we have another fantastic episode for you guys today, a little bit more foreign policy for those of you who enjoyed the Elbridge Colby episode. Um, but before I get to who we had on, as always, make sure you go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything else that we have cooking as an organization, including upcoming events. We're hosting a bunch in the fall, I believe, as well as other programming that we're doing and if you'd like to kick some cash our way you're more than welcome to do that as well. Uh this week we had on Sumantra Maitra, Dr. Sumantra Maitra, also known as Mr. mitra on Twitter. Yes, I know it's confusing. Uh who's a national security fellow at the Center for the National Interest here in DC and a non-resident fellow at the James G. Martin Center and an elected associate fellow at the Royal Historical Society in the United Kingdom and most recently also a visiting fellow at the Center for New America. Our patriotic and uh, uh, hard fighting friends over there, led by Russ Vote. Um, he's also senior contributor to the Federalist and the National Interest. He uh, started his career as a journalist, covering foreign affairs for over ten years. Written for the Spectator, Telegraph, Washington Examiner, Quillette, National Review, etc. And then his academic essays, after he got his PhD, have been published in the Canadian Military Journal, the Center for Land Warfare Studies Journal, Political Studies Review, International Affairs, and others. Um, he got his MA in distinction uh, with distinction grade from SMU India, as well as a Master of International Relations from the University of Otago, New Zealand, with distinctions in international politics and global trade, where he was awarded a coursework master's scholarship. He completed his PhD in international relations at the University of Nottingham, UK, with a Vice Chancellor Scholarship in Research Excellence. And his expertise is in great power politics, political theory, cultural dynamics shaping foreign policy, realism, conservatism, reactionary social trends, grand strategy, and naval strategy, and specifically he had a lot of trouble getting his PhD funded initially because he wanted to study great power relations and Russia uh, and now he's in very hot demand because turns out that these problems don't go away we had a fantastic episode talking about uh, everything Ukraine um, but also uh, how to think about realism more broadly Nick what you think about all that Well,
2: it was funny because you know we always joke about when people talk
1: about Putin they say Putin and he does that. He does that too. But yeah. it's because he's not from here. He has yeah. an English accent, as you will quickly discover. Yeah. Um, it's great to listen to. I think it'll make for, for good podcasting. Better than us Yankee sounding folks. Yeah, it
2: was a it was a great I always love the ones where we can talk about like deep history yep. stuff I like nerd out over that mm-hmm. so um we got to talk a little bit we, about- we
1: did stop him from going all the way back to Thucydides to talk about realism
2: yes <laughs> yes we did we, we did stop that but yeah the history of Russia and Ukraine which is which is very interesting you see a lot of what is it we've termed it? Misinformation about so that these days. Uh, so talked a lot about that. Ukraine um, was actually the first country to ever exist. It's the yeah. most
1: sacrosanct.
2: Yeah. Actually, Adam and Eve, Ukrainians. <laughs> uh, that's why we're all Ukrainians now. So true. Uh, so yeah. True. No, it was a lot of fun. The guys got jokes. We we ought to have them back on. It was it was a great episode.
1: We will. Um, so we'll go now to Dr. Sumatra Mitra. Howdy, Dr. Mitra. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, we always like to hear about how people got to the point where they're doing what they are today. You have a very interesting background that spans continents. Tell, tell us the tale. How did you end up here? Bane uh, neocons.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, where do I start? I was born to honest parents in Calcutta. Um, but um, I, you, I was a, a journalist, essentially, um, before I delved into academia. Um, I was working as a foreign correspondent um, and then I had a scholarship in New Zealand in Otago University which is uh New Zealand's uh, top research university and they said that you can uh, do a course here and then you can teach So I thought that would be a, an interesting time um, it was just immediately after the Russian war um, in Georgia and uh, uh, So I went there I lived in New Zealand um I did my second master's. Um, I was teaching at the university, and teaching journalism, or no, okay. uh, in international relations. Okay, uh, I was doing like first year classes there as a tutor. Um, and then I was thinking whether I should do a PhD or not. And I was, um, everyone was telling me not to do a PhD because everything was focused on counterintelligence and counterinsurgency at that point of time, and no one was focused on great power politics. And what, what years would this have been? This was 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can imagine, like peak. Obama era.
1: So, you, you know. so you saw that like world events uh, caused pressures <coughs> in the career pipeline for people involved in foreign policy, like in terms of just what what people were studying.
0: There were situations where you would have been actively dissuaded from getting a scholarship because the worldview was that things have changed. It's not going to be uh, the way it's anymore. So. Um, if you're studying on amoral realism, you know where power is what matters and nothing else. You know, you would be considered a dinosaur from a from a previous era. Um, I I had three offers and one of them was from a university in in UK in Scotland and I I'm not going to name that. But um, when I submitted my PhD proposal, uh, it was given back to me with scribble saying like, you know, the entire literature review part was like, you need to get rid of all these things, you know, focus on these things. And I didn't like that. I I didn't want to do that. So um, I continued to look for and I finally got a PhD off from Nottingham, uh, had a scholarship there and I moved to the UK and that's where I live and before I moved to the US and I finished my PhD in uh, great power politics in Europe, focusing on Russia. Pretty timely stuff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I locked out. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, I I think I once heard a conservative podcaster, um, talk about how his his wife got a degree in Sovietology, uh, that she matriculated or she graduated from uh, six months before the Soviet Union collapsed and so uh, yeah. you you had the opposite of whatever I had the opposite that was yeah um, so so kudos to you and uh, Kind of what's the the trajectory of your, your worldview when it comes to international relations and foreign policy Have you always kind of found yourself on a on a more realist track? What does that mean to you? What what, what inspired you to take that that viewpoint of international politics?
0: so My youth was, I'm guessing, pretty similar to youth who have seen the world on terror, uh, the war on terror, um, reading Christopher Hitchens and all that. Um, I never really believed um, in some of that universalist uh, outlook, you know. um, And that especially happens when you have traveled and lived in different continents, you know, you see that one of the biggest. Uh, variables that's absent from your worldview is culture. And if you have a universalist idea that you're gonna impose in different parts of the world. Now, individually, uh, there are lots of people who could be very different. But overall, um, cultural dynamic is something which affects a country's history and geography and, uh, and and vice versa. Like, geography also determines a country's history. So one of the things which I was constantly worried about, or not worried, but skeptical about, uh, was these kind of things that was written in those days uh, about, you know, the all you need is a good push, and you'll get the world running the way you want to. And I was always skeptical of that idea, and uh, it wasn't true, as you know, time has proved. Um, you would still probably find, even though they're like really terrible student error writings, like some of my articles opposing the Libyan intervention in 2011 in Washington Examiner's website, because um, I was blogging for them at that point of time uh, to get some extra money. Um, I was always opposed to the use of force um, when it comes to foreign policy unless act you know actively you know needed um unless your interests are threatened i didn 't really consider values to be you know the, if you define interests in a very uh, broad term then everything is you know according to your own interest and then you'll be you'll be fighting a global war like Kenneth waltz mentioned one you know you have global governance then you'll have a global civil war and that's precisely what we saw in the last many years so to get back to your question i uh I read about all these things, you know, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and all that, Stephen Pinker and Fukuyama. I just never believed in those things. And then obviously, um, when I got older, I realized that it's dash. And what about the
1: other elements of your worldview? Because you're one of the rare realists you find in and around these circles in, in DC that did not come from, or at least as far as I'm aware in recent history, was not a libertarian realist, you kind of have I think, more conservative tendencies than that? How how does that play into, A, the sociology of what it was like to be a, in a very lonely point of view in Washington, but also um, how that affects the way you think about foreign policy?
0: So realism as a theory is... And and its marriage with libertarianism is a very American thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, it, it's a very it's a relatively new thing. Realism is not really a a, a theory which is uh, effectuating anything to do with uh, liberty. Essentially, you know, if you read earlier era realism, I, mean, I, I don't want to go to, you know, Thucydides or Machiavelli or anything of that sort. But even you know, since international relations became. Uh, uh, a discipline to study, realism was um, an, a very reactionary idea. I mean, th- think of the things that realism is worried about or, or, or you know, is affected about. Um, power, obviously, it's a, it's a reactionary concept. You know, one of the prime variables of realism is about power distribution, whether it's human power or state power. Uh, nationalism, nation states. If, you, if, you, if you're talking about national interest, you have to define what a nation is. If you have mutating boundaries, if you have mutating boundaries, whether it's an alliance systems or whether it's uh, your own borders, you know, you won't be able to define the mass of the region whose interests you're talking about. So it's fundamentally contradictory to think that um, anything can be uh, tied up between uh, an idea which which talks about hierarchy and power and national interest and immorality, essentially. Not, you know, one of the, Greatest quotes uh, by Morgenthau. I'm sure you guys always, you know, read in in whoever is studying international relations is, you know, an individual can say that via justice via period mundus, uh, like you know, the world might perish, perish, but you know, a justice should be done. But a state has got no right to say that. Now he didn't just come out of that because he was like smoking weed, right? <laughs> I mean, there was a logic behind it. The reason is, as an individual. You are absolutely well within your rights to think about what is just or unjust, and you're well allowed to fight for it. There were people from the United States who went to the Spanish Republican Civil War and fought against the Nazis. By all means, do that. But the moment you're leading a state, there is a greater ethical consideration uh, which is at play. Like there are people, hundreds and thousands and millions of people under you, and their well, you know, well-being and their their safety is your prime con- concern. So you can't be bothered. About what's happening and what's unjust in the world, unless your interests are threatened, and that's one of the reasons why Morgenthau said that, like, the Second World War wasn't about, uh, you know, just uh, power or liberty. It was fundamentally about the idea that we shouldn't let uh, two great powers dominate Europe and Asia. You know, uh, it, Germany was committing crimes before U.S. joined the fight. U.S. didn't join the fight up until it was attacked, and that was the right thing to do because it was attacked. You know, um, so this 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 modern idea of libertarianism and and, and, and finally one one very important you know point uh, where libertarianism and realism kind of like deviates um, is public opinion. Libertarians are. Determined to focus on, and, and that's understandable. You know, it's it, it's well within their theory. They they think that mass democracy is what would lead you to, and and sometimes they do, you know. But also, in a republican polity like the United States, um, public opinion should be uh, thought about when the polity is not under a bureaucratic. Uh, limit so the so but by that what I mean is if the bureaucrats are determining and deciding what's good and bad then they have the ways to sway those public opinion to their favor an important concept for that to test that theory was um, about the no-fly zone in Ukraine you know, when people said, when it was said that there should be a no-fly zone in Ukraine, everyone was like, yeah, sure, fine. And then when it was explained, what a no-fly zone would actually entail shooting down Russian planes, that would mean third world war. Public opinion immediately backed off, you know? So if you just depend on public opinion as a theory without, you know, considering the other ways of swaying public opinion, then I think your theory is flawed. Realism, on the other hand, doesn't really care about public opinion. She only cares about national interest. It doesn't really matter whether it's uh, going to the Congress or whether the president is doing it. It's doing it what's good for its own country. And how to decide that? Here are the theories and here are the ways to the variables that would help you.
1: Do you want to get more involved with American Moment? Do you want to get off the couch and stop just watching a podcast about the issues you care about? Then you need to go to AmericanMoment.org join. If you fill that form out, one of our team members will meet with you and we'll discuss how best to get you involved in politics and public policy here in D.C. Maybe that involves you coming and working at a think tank or a congressional office. Maybe you're in business and it means just holding on for a few years until we get the next presidential administration. Maybe you're a very wealthy person who wants to give us a bunch of money. Either way, go to AmericanMoment.org join to meet with a member of our team and get involved more substantively in trying to save this country. It's not enough to listen to podcasts. You actually have to do something.
2: So you brought up an interesting point a minute ago that I want to I want to go back to you know yeah. talking about knowing <clears throat> what a what a nation is and knowing what you um, you know what your values and morals actually are before you make a, a decision on whether to go to war or not or whether to get in a certain kind of combat. As as you look over the last you know half a century, um, maybe a little more, do you think that some of the more misguided conflicts or interventions have been a result of America struggling with, you know, its own identity and what its values are post-World War II?
0: Yes. Um, So, let me put it this way. If, I'm sure there, you know, you guys have all read Teddy Roosevelt. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there was this one quote, and forgive me if I'm bungling it, um, where he mentioned that, you know, when you move to the the United States you're not hyphenated you're not German American or Irish American you're an American mm-hmm. and it's the American flag that would be on top and not your identity or the other flags now obviously that just taken out uh, out of context would sound very authoritarian but if you think through there was a logic behind it um, what he what he wanted to explain was that unless you think of yourself, As a citizen of a polity whose whose benefit in entirety is your own interest, you would not be able to determine what those interests are. So, if I, if tomorrow there is a there is a trade war between the UK and the US or the or or India or US, I mean the, the the fundamental question that I would need at that point of time to think about is like you know what would be my interest? Where am I living? You know what am I doing? And I think that's one of the uh, various unsaid variables in in DC is there are lots of um, opinions circulating which doesn't really grapple with those considerations about where you belong. What your country mm-hmm. is? Whose interests are you are you thinking about? You know, you're you're talking about supporting Ukraine. Uh, fine, that's a that's a moral consideration. Ukraine is under attack, but at what cost? Do you, are you willing to go to a nuclear war to support Ukraine? Like what? Where does the this this division between nationalism and universalism, you know, is determined?
1: Well, it's and it's not even often universalism versus nationalism. It's it's a conflicted nationalism. It's yeah downstream of split identity so like why is it that particular ethnic lobbies you know x-hyphenated american lobbies come to lobby for a certain foreign policy stance towards their home country yeah if if they were fully assimilated they would have no distinguished opinion and the group of people that would come to have a particular view on our foreign policy toward new zealand would look just like every other american it would just be new zealanders but you know well
2: and it's not only that it's also like uh you know, wanting to export a commercialized culture, so it's like nationalism, but for the gay trans pride flag. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's nationalism, but you know, for for uh, you know, putting a BLM fist on a can of diet coke. Yeah. You know, it's and it's and, that and,
0: sort of and thing. it's also exploited. Mm-hmm. I mean. Now, obviously the Ukrainians are not, I mean, their their prime con- concern at this point of time is not to have like, you know, LGBT pride parade in Kyiv, but they know that that's what's going to fly in mm-hmm. the US. So they, I mean, the tax funded dollars are going to Ukraine and that's then going to the lobby groups, which is then funding the PR and that's being, and what you're seeing in Union Station is essentially your own money being yeah. reflected towards you. So yeah. they know what, what sells. Yeah. So,
1: Let's get to the core of your scholarship and the biggest story uh, in in world affairs this year, uh Russia and Ukraine. Let's go back 10 years. What was the reason to believe that some sort of precipitating conflict was going to happen?
0: It 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 the the history of that uh goes back it goes beyond 10 years it was in the making since 2007 the the Munich conference speech of of Putin and and um, even before that there were people who were you know saying that you know we, we probably shouldn't push so <clears throat> I w- when I was doing my PhD um, the theoretical framework that I used was Stephen walls balance of threat theory now I'm gonna <clears throat> explain that theory a little bit so, essentially, it gives you four variables. Um, geographic proximity, uh, aggregate power, offensive capabilities, and offensive intentions. And in the <clears throat> intermixing of those variables, uh, countries, threat perception, rises and falls. So, when people talk about, um, you know, the war is caused by NATO expansion, uh, the counter argument is like, no, Russia was always revanchist. They're both kind of flawed. It's It's not, the war wasn't caused... Just because of NATO expansion per se, it was caused because there were specific regions where Russia's interests were threatened. So, and I and I studied that uh, in the backdrop of the various phases of NATO expansion. So when you know one of the you know the first people who um, promoted this idea of pushing you know German frontiers and NATO boundaries towards these was Walcker. It, it was a German, you know, obviously. Now it makes sense for them, you know, if you, if your boundaries. Move towards the east, uh, and if you have Anglo-Americans guarding your frontiers, uh, think of it this way: in 1989, there were 12 divisions of German army, uh, and now they can't, you know, have they can't field a squadron of of submarines. So it it makes sense for them, you know, to buck past the security burden. So that's one thing. From Russia's perspective, they don't see a difference between the U.S. and the European Union and NATO. To them, it's all the same. You know, it's coming towards our frontiers. But even then, uh, they don't really care about if you know uh, NATO tanks are in Poland or Hungary because they know they can't do anything about it and there is a buffer zone in between them anyway. But when it comes to Georgia, when it comes to Ukraine, uh, or even when it comes to Syria, <clears throat> there are defensible uh, interests. Syria has got a Mediterranean port, a Russian naval port, so that's a defensible interest. Ukraine, the entire eastern part of Ukraine uh, was, a <clears throat> um, the military-industrial complex of of Russian uh, Navy, Georgia has got Russian pipelines, you know, uh, oil pipelines going through it, which Russia thinks it's in their core interest. And obviously, Abkhazia and all those places are defensible frontiers. You know, if you if you think of a tank battle, you know, you have to go through Abkhazia and South Ossetia. That's difficult for NATO tanks to do. So if they think, can you from, just say what that is? So those are the breakaway provinces of of Georgia, which now belongs to Russia essentially, um, <clears throat> and. Uh, because the Russians think that, you know, they're, and, and, and again, like I mentioned, culture determines their history. You know, in, in, in the Russian language, for example, you know, there is no single good word for safety. The closest word you can find for safety is bijipasnost, which means no danger. You know, <laughs> if you ask a Russian, uh, how is it going? They won't say, I'm good or I'm well. They'll say, nepluha, like not bad. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just the way, you know, uh, the Russian culture is, you know, defined. They have faced invasions from the Mongols, from the Swedes, from the Polish-Lithuanians and Napoleon, you, you name it. Like, yeah. I mean, they, they don't have defensible frontiers. That, that's why they always think about that. You know, they're, to them, they're paranoid culture. You know, they're, they're worried about uh, countries affecting. Now, we might not think it that way. Obviously, NATO is not intending to attack Russia. I mean, we are not fools that we're going to go and conquer Russia. But it's difficult to get through to them, and when they see that these are the countries where they actually have defensible interests going towards uh, their their uh, an alignment which is opposed to them nominally, they feel threatened, and that you know react makes them react to, to international affairs. So, what were these specific slights that were
1: um, uh, caused over the course of the last you know since 2007, each of which escalated the situation?
0: So, when nine one one happened, um, <clears throat> Russia Putin at that point of time uh, came and he was the first um, international leader to come to the United States and say, "Hey, we need to get together because Islamism is a big threat." Um, <clears throat> and uh, obviously, at that point of time, we looked away because the Russians had their own interests in Chechnya and they wanted to term the Chechen independence movement as a as an Islamist movement. And you know, and we said, "Fine, you can do whatever in Chechnya, but as long as we get our bases in Central Asia." you're fine so that's what happened and then immediately after that um, it was George Bush who uh, said that you know we're gonna negate from all the treaties of ballistic missiles in Europe um, the Russians were kind of miffed at that point of time and then and then we said that we're gonna expand on NATO to the to your frontiers and in 2008 I think in the Bucharest summit um, it was a stupid mistake from the Europeans um, and the Americans um, because we essentially gave everything to the Russians, rhetorically, without getting anything back. So what happened exactly was, Ukraine and Georgia wanted to be part of NATO. Now, no one in the US or Europe wanted them to be part of NATO. But obviously, if we say that, you know, Europe, European Union will not expand, or NATO will not expand, that defeats the purpose of European Union's existence, which is constantly expanding Europe uh, to this, this uh, empire of values. Um, So we can't say that. So what we did is said, yes, Georgia and Ukraine would join NATO and and European Union, but we didn't mention a timeline. We didn't mention anything. So we kind of tried to appease both sides. We kind of like uh, tried to keep it in a, in a, in a, uh, in a, you know, with with plausible deniability, but obviously it didn't work that way to the Russians. uh, They were like, this is it. We have to move. And then there was this... There are certain people who say it's a putsch. I I wouldn't call it a putsch. It was, it was a rebellion in in Ukraine, but it was also the toppling of a democratically elected government, and that increased the paranoia of Russia, and they thought that this is. They see, you know, it's a Western plot and everything. So.
1: And whose regime would that have been?
0: That was uh, uh the guy. I'm forgetting his name. Um, the guy who was deposed and fled to Russia. Uh, Yanukovych, uh, Victor Yanukovych, he was uh, he was ruling Ukraine at that point of time. He was, was a uh, not really the you know nicest guy you'd find, but also uh, it's democracy. And he won, and he was toppled, and there was kind of like a like a the Maidan Revolution, and the Russia immediately moved in because obviously the Russians had defensible interests in Crimea. It was historically part of Russia. It had the Black Sea Fleet. Um, it wouldn't want to lose it. I mean, when Soviet Union dissolved. Um, one of the things the Russians did first with Ukraine was to sign a treaty that we have a 30-year lease on Crimea, you know, and that treaty just kind of, like, increased every every time they had renewed it. But so that was when Russians went completely bonkers.
2: Yeah, so you see this interesting, um, you know, kind of battle over the <clears throat> the history, I think, of both Ukraine and Russia. Um, you know, you, you see a lot of the russian side of things talking about the kevin Ruse, right um you know who who basically moved up into russia and founded kind of the modern russian state you know a lot more about it than i do but um i've seen a lot of like pushback from from you know a lot of these liberal internationalists that say no the the ukrainian culture state 100 different not even related to russia at all like it's it's always been like this that's that's just propaganda can you tell us a little more about you know how about their relationship from a historical perspective uh
0: so the ukrainian state as we see now is uh is a modern uh a, a modern avatar uh, you know, obviously, you know there were the Habsburg Empire and the Romanovs, and you know the dividing line you can see uh, is still visible. Essentially, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's the the Huntingtonian way of looking at it. I I, I don't buy it fully, but but there are you know uh, things that you can see that you know <clears throat> essentially the 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 places that you have conflicts are the the borderlines of civilizational divisions in a way. Um, Russians were opposed to the British and the French in during the Crimean War in the, in, the, in 1856, for example, when we supported Turkey. Uh, because at that point of time, Russia was a massive threat to Britain. Um, you know, the Russian Empire was. After 1815, um, people think that it was Britain, which was the, the hegemon of Europe. But Britain never really... Uh, saw itself as a hegemon. It was more of an offshore balancer. It had a massive navy, but it never really had a big army. Um, But it had a huge empire in the east, and it had to defend it. And one of the ways to defend the empire was through the sea, and the other was to balance Russia, which was the the actual hegemon uh, after 1815. And... uh, you know, so we supported you know forces which were opposed. Uh, so at that, I mean, it's one of the reasons why realism is so interesting. Is because it doesn't really care about ideology or or religion. I mean, Russians are co-religionists in a way to Britain and France, but Turkey wasn't. But you know, interests trump ideology in in some ways uh, and regime types. So uh, and after the Second World War, obviously you know, uh, the entire region went to the Soviet Union and uh, Stalin changed the boundaries the way he wanted. Uh, He gave Crimea, Khrushchev gave Crimea to to Ukraine, uh, Crimea, which was historically, you know, the crown jewel of Russia, uh, the Black Sea Fleet since the time of Pushkin. Um, And that was given to Ukraine because, you know, Khrushchev never really comprehended uh, that his Soviet Union might dissolve someday. You know, people don't really understand how history works. So, once the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine kind of became the center, the fault line of 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 this of this massive kind of like civilizational uh, uh, crisis. To answer your question, um, even within the Soviet Union, the Baltic states. Um, and parts of Ukraine, which was parts of Ukraine in the west, which was part of Poland and Polish and the Baltic states, which were kind of like more Germanic uh, in, in their ethnicity, they were always very different compared to the to the core Slavic uh, civilizations of of Russia and Belarus and parts of Eastern Ukraine and all that. Um, but again, I mean, that would that would just simplify that too much and blur it to ethnicity, where I mean, you can still find like what. 30% of people uh in 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 Belarus who support to join the West. So I think it's more complicated than uh the ethnic lines because it got blurred in 90 years of Soviet experimentation. Um so yeah. I don't know if that answers your question but
1: No, it's it's helpful. Um tell me a little bit more about that 30-year lease that they had on Crimea and why yeah. why that precipitated um why the situation with the Ukrainian government collapsing precipitated them moving into Crimea.
0: So Ukraine was always divided. The western parts of Ukraine was more uh, Roman Catholic. They were more uh, westernized in a way, and they never really liked the, the eastern parts, but they kind of like, you know, cohabited in a, in a, in a same uh, divided region. Um, uh, Russia, when... So when Soviet Union collapsed, the people who were leading the U.S. were far more uh, realist, obviously. So they understood that even though Russia has collapsed, we need to kind of keep it, you know, appease it, and it was still a superpower. I mean, it still has, you know, thousands of nuclear weapons. You know, we 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 have forgotten how to deal with great powers and their massive nuclear weapons because of the last thirty years, and we think like, you know, everything is just going to turn out just fine. uh We have lost the idea of that. You know, at, at a moment's notice, things can go completely wrong. So anyway, uh the elder statesmen of those days, they understood that Russia is a big power. It has got legitimate interests in its own boundaries, and they kind of, you know, and one of the core uh, interests at that point of time in the United States was to get rid of the nuclear weapons in other parts of the, the Soviet empire, which could have fallen into the hands of, you know, different people we wouldn't like. So, uh, as long as we know uh, that there is a... So, a so fundamental concept of realism is tyranny is better to deal with than anarchy so as long as we know that there is a tyrannical power in russia and uh, it would we 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 know the devil so we'd be able to deal with it and uh, so we kind of like sort of facilitated uh, russian Re-establishment as a, as a regional power after the collapse of Soviet Union. We helped them with aid and we kind of like uh, Said that we are gonna l- look away when you have your own deals So they had a deal with Ukraine about this lease uh, on Crimea Which obviously got extended every single time but obviously uh, in 2014 when that In 2003 when the color revolution happened Russians uh, were really worried and um, but it kind of changed on itself. Uh, Yanukovych came back to power democratically, so Russians thought, like you know, they would, and they actually offered uh, quite a bit of money to Ukraine, saying that you know you don't have to join the European Union. There are lots of things, not just uh, strategic interests. Um, if Ukraine joins the Soviet Union, uh, the European Union, for example, the, there will be um, export checks on stuff that's coming from Russia. They won't be able to sell. So, you know, at that point of time, it was a valid consideration. Now, obviously, it's all gone. But in 2003, for example, the Russians were worried that, oh, we won't be able to sell our wine and our cheese or whatever we export to Ukraine because they will be under the European Union, there will be mm-hmm. checks. So, um, quality checks were one of the concerns. But military interests, obviously, the other one. Um, uh, supply lines uh, from eastern Ukraine, like some of their uh, listing missiles silos, the material that's used were used from factories in the eastern parts of Ukraine. Um, uh, hydraulic uh, engines were used in the eastern parts of Ukraine that was then exported to Russia. Uh, so these were all obviously uh, major considerations for Russians. Um, but after 2014, they realized that the ball is out of their court. You know, they they don't have any power to, or they they can't expect you know a normally functioning polity. And they thought it's over, so they have to take it by force. So that's what they did. Now. From our perspective, it's obviously stupid. You know, they we think that they shot themselves in the foot and they kind of did in a way. I mean, they, they miscalculated the resolve of Ukraine or, or the fact that we're gonna supply them with our money and weapons. Um, but on the other hand, from their perspective, they were like Japan in 1942. It was die if you do, die if you don't. You, you either go for the oil fields in, in Asia and attack the United States or you choke yourself to death. So sometimes rationalities are competing so
2: can you walk us through a little bit some of the i i feel like a lot of the the europeans in particular are kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth on on the you know russian invasion on on one hand you know strongly condemning it saying that that putin is like the modern day equivalent of hitler but also buying as much russian oil and natural gas as humanly possible can you tell us a little more about
0: that putin is obviously not hitler I mean, I if, if anyone, I, and I'm baffled to see that in DC, that these kind of claims go unchallenged. You just Well, recent, even in Brussels, too. Oh, I mean, yeah. well, Brussels would essentially say exactly the same things that we. I mean, that's, a, that's yeah. an interesting point that you mentioned about Brussels. I'm going to come back to it, remind me. But um, Putin is not Hitler. It's understandable, uh, you monster. Yeah, I know, <laughs> how dare I you? <laughs> I, I think I'm going to be cancelled, but just for saying that. Uh, he is. Uh, he. His the model of of Russia is more oligarchic than tyrannical. Um, he has got control of the state apparatus, um, but he's no way. I mean, they couldn't even make people join in a conscription to their war. They haven't even declared a war. They have declared like a sm- small military operation in eastern parts of Ukraine. That's hardly Third Reich material. Mm-hmm. Um, they are bogged down, and obviously, you know, threat perception is will plus capability. It's not. I mean, I can intend to be like, I, I can intend that I'm going to run ten kilometers every morning, and I'm going to be like James Bond. But I'm a short, pudgy, uh, nerdy guy, so you <laughs> know, I, uh, it doesn't really matter what I what I intend to do. It matters what I'm capable of doing. So Russians are not capable of conquering Kiev, much less, you know, I, I'm not gonna. We're not going to see Russian tanks. In the Polish meadows, any time, much less threaten the United, uh, the English Channel or the Atlantic, which was the consideration for U.S. and Britain to stop Nazis. Was you know the entire European continent coming under one single hegemon would give them enormous amount of production capacities. Uh, that would be uh, then a major challenge for any naval power, which was uh, what U.K. and U.S. was at that point of time, and, and even now. So yes, to answer your question in a very short brief time, anyone who says that Putin is like Hitler or you know Russia is like the Third Reich, they uh they're either lying and they know that they're lying and they're manipulating public opinion or they're just incredibly dumb. So uh, you you know choose whichever way you want to go, but I think those are the the answers. The Brussels question is interesting. What the US did uh since the collapse of the Soviet Union was an attempt of institutionalizing peace in the European continent. This is very important. I was mentioning that in in one of the one of the seminars that you organized, Nick, uh, the other day. The idea of the grand strategy of Britain and US has been historically to be an offshore balancer of Europe. You know, not let Europe fall under one single uh, flag or army, because that would be uh, a major problem for any naval power, and that's a valid concern. You know we might not like to think about that way they are kins and you know we have, we have we have family ties with europe and trade that doesn't really stop i mean tomorrow if european union turns to be a trade superpower and if it says that you know euro is going to be the the global currency and not the dollar the american dollar germany collapses are we going to fight with europe are we going to bomb them you know that it, it might happen i'm not saying it will but it might you know in international relations you don't really trust other powers you know you can't um so but but the difference between the British grand strategy and the the American Grand strategy in Europe is visible. We uh, both the countries wanted uh, to be the offshore balancer of Europe, but Britain was a more hands-off you know way of dealing with it. so if if anyone is fighting with the other power, we're going to help the third power. So we helped you know Netherlands against Spain, France against Germany, Germany against France, and that kind of stuff. America wanted to have a peaceful continent, but on the same time subservient. Uh, to American interests, which is a rational and logical way of going about it. But the problem is, there are two things that you need to do in order to achieve that aim. One is you need to have supranational institutions, which then dominate uh, national polity. So you have European Union, you have expanded NATO, you know. Um, The thing that happens then is... The natural balancers of Europe, Britain, France, Germany, the great powers—they, the reason European muscle atrophies is because they know that there are institutions guarding, you know, their frontiers with America as the as the big balancer on the sides. So their forces go down. You know, they they you know they push the bat you know to the other powers. So that's what one of the first primary casualties of, of institutionalization is. The second thing is. The moment you uh, institutionalize peace in a continent, you have a bureaucracy which is then self-sustaining, and that is how bureaucracies work. You, it's very difficult to be Calvin Coolidge and roll back, you know, a bureaucracy. It's very difficult to do that. You know, there will be entrenched pressure groups. I mean, look at the NHS in UK. Look at NATO. They will find ways which will justify their existence and justify their threat, and they will say anything in order to expand, to grow or die, you know? Uh, that's Mike Desch's What by the way, not mine. I, I stand on the shoulder of giants. Um, so that's what happened in Brussels. Essentially, we have created this monster which would, you know, fly LGBT flags and, you know, justify uh, going against... You know, there are people in NATO who say... Uh, who talk about abortion rights in the United States. I mean, it doesn't. It defies logic, if you think of it that way. I mean, that's none of their business, you know, what happens in, in the U.S., what American people are deciding to do, but but that's what they do because they think that they're part of this own entire supranational institution, which is uh, opposed to any kind of national interest. The, one of the reasons why NATO expands uh, and one of the things that it entails is it stops the U.S. from thinking uh, rationally whether it's in our interest or not. You know, it's all going on and, you know, there is no one to stop it. Unless, you know, it's stopped in Ukraine and then we realize what well, that power has, still has got uh, more capability than values. Taking uh, as
1: a given that it's not likely to go away, do you think that there is a role for NATO in the 21st century?
0: <sighs> That's a... My personal opinion and my uh, theoretical opinion might differ. I personally, at this point of time, Think NATO should go away, and there would be dif- there should be divided alliance. I'm not opposed to alignments, um, but I just think the primary interest of US is safeguarding uh, Asia Pacific and maybe Western Europe. Um, those were the strategic interests that the US we need us. You know, Germany, which is you know subdued in a way. We don't want uh, a German Reich in the middle of Europe because Germany is the natural hegemon of Europe. And that's, that, and that's true. One of the reasons, you know, uh, the French Prime Minister, Premier, who said that, you know, we love Germany so much that we want it three times, so divide it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's true because one of the, one of the biggest problems that happened since Bismarck united Germany was that we didn't, Germany was too big for Europe and too small to control it. So, and then that's something which we don't want again. Yeah, so there is a valid interest in having to to see at least a little bit of subdued Germany. Obviously, you know, uh, shouldering far more burden than it does now, but still, no way, you know, trying to, you know, when when you know, there was this saying, I think it was John Oliver, that when when Europe goes far right, they go far right through Poland. <laughs> so we don't want that to happen. Um The second thing we think is the Eastern Europeans obviously have a valid threat perception. I mean, that's understandable, but I also don't want to pay for them. You know, there are rich powers in Europe which should pay. And one of the reasons why they don't is because they know that when there is a fire, we're going to be there to break the glass, you know. President Trump's instinct was good about moving troops out of Germany, but he was then forced to put it in Poland. That defeats the purpose of it. If you're taking forces from one place and then moving it to their east, which is supposed to be in the <laughs> middle of them and their biggest threats in Russia, why would they pay? Yeah. If you the want troops to...
1: weren't in Germany because Germany was threatened. The yeah. troops were in Germany to supply because... the Eastern Europe. There you go. Yeah. So
0: so if we have if we want to see uh the Western European rich powers pay for their own security or take more sh- shoulder, more burden, we need to come to a to uh to an understanding with them that look we're gonna move our troops we're gonna give you ten years time we're gonna move our troops back we're still going to be there we're still going to be uh, an offshore balancer you'll still have the the American nuclear umbrella uh, because we don't want their fingers on the nuclear button um, we we'll still have like the largest navy even though Britain and France are both you know naval powers. But overall, you need to have your own troops. You know, it should be German and Dutch troops uh, based in in eastern parts of Ukraine, in Latvia and Lithuania, not American troops. You know, it should be the Finnish reserve forces that we hear about so much. Uh, 900,000 Finnish reserve forces. It's a stupid idea. I mean, it's so contradictory to say that, like, these are great powers who will come and benefit the NATO and say, no, they also need support from us. I mean, I don't see people see the contradiction in what they say, but hey, you know, whatever sells in DC, I think.
2: So you uh you know mentioned kind of rebalancing our our alliances um, and reorganizing them around different interests in 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 your mind what what exactly would that look like what would those you know interests be and who would who would the the, the powers be that we would you know collaborate with the most frequently
0: so hegemony is unsustainable the reason is first of all the globe is too big for one, power to control. And secondly, you bankrupt yourself, you know, insolvency. Um, So that's why realism divides into regions and, you know, interests and regional interests and theatres. So from the American perspective, obviously. Now, now realism as a theory will give you assumptions, and then you have to calculate based on your geographic location and all that and other factors. So uh, the Estonian realism dictates that they want america to uh, have all the troops based in their borders because they are a small power with 4000 army uh, 4000 strong army but obviously the american interest is different so even though they are both realism you know their geographic locations is uh, what determining their political calculations so from american perspective the first thing is to think of uh, Latin America or the Western Hemisphere is not, there are no global uh, hegemons or, you know, global powers coming in establishing a German. That's not happening now. So when that happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we stopped them. That's not happening, so that's not our concern anymore. There is, uh, you know, lots of things happening in Latin America. China we, coming in. China coming Belgian in, guard. but we the first thing we should probably do about is to fix the Southern border. So if, you know, that, that, that I mean, if there is one consideration that we need to make about the South it should be that one, but there are no great power challenges per se. I don't think China is having major bases or missiles based there, and we're going to bomb them, you know, if they do. Um, Asia Pacific is obviously the the biggest threat, um, but that, but again, I mean, there's a, there's a catch there. Uh, yes, China is uh, a major threat to the US national interest. Um, the sheer size of China is unthinkable. I think people don't realize how big China is you know, if you think of the Chinese manpower, it's more than the combined manpower of US, European Union, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So it is huge, Leon. You know, the Chinese GDP percentage share uh, with the US is more than any hegemonic threats the US has faced, including the Nazis, Imperial jo- Japan, Soviet Union, uh, Imperial Spain, and Imperial Germany. You know, the five hegemonic challenges that US has faced in history. So China is a big threat, but also the good thing about Asia is China is surrounded by other powers which are more aligned to, to the US interest. I mean, Asia in 2022 is not like Europe in 1949 with all the major powers decimated. So we don't really have to be in forward positions. We can have alignments and there are Australia and Japan and India and all the Quad partners and all these powers, but, but I don't foresee a situation where... China is turning out to be like again like Hitler and going on a you know a binge of conquering simultaneously uh, in a war with Japan and Australia and India and Vietnam and you know all the other powers. So so there is a there is there is way of navigating that that arena. Yes, it's a threat. It's probably the biggest threat. But also we need to be smart about it uh, instead of just going full gung ho about defending Taiwan and going to a nuclear war. The survival is the more important uh, thing here. And then Western Europe. Um, I think Western Europe is obviously a, an area of interest um, but also we want Europe to carry their own burden. We need what we need to do essentially in Europe is to deinstitutionalize. We need to let great powers, we need to let like local alignments form, you know, the French and Greek naval uh, engagement in the Mediterranean was a good model for example. Let them defend the Mediterranean, let them defend, let them have their own navy. We should probably give them some money. I mean we are spending so much on Ukraine, we should probably give more money to Greece. To have a good navy to defend against uh, people coming from Africa, for example, that's a far more, far bigger concern for Europe than you know uh, Russia rampaging through Poland, which is not going to happen. So, uh, so yes, there are you know I, I do think we need uh, to have some interest in the western parts of Europe. We ha- we need to have some obviously a major interest in in Asia, but also uh, the situation of the world is very different than 1949, and we can be really smart about it.
1: So one of the things that has frustrated me immensely about the fact that Russia and Ukraine went to war is that it's probably foreclosed in the imagination of American foreign policy elites, even considering what I think the hope might have been this decade, which is that Russia became part of that counterbalance against China in Mm. Asia Do you think that there's any hope for something like that happening? Do you think there ever was any chance that would happen?
0: There, there certainly was, but I think we lost. I think I I don't want to sound too self-critical, but I think we pushed Russia towards China in the last. um, (laughs) They're doing joint
1: military exercises.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, great job, everyone. (laughs) Yeah, we. One of the biggest concern in in you know since since historically, you know, uh, the US Grand Strategy was formed and determined was to not have a Eurasian power block. And we are doing everything possible um, with the, uh, because thanks to the NGOs placed in Ukraine, that we are pushing, essentially pushing Russia towards China and creating that power block, which is going to be opposed to us. Um, And not just that, because of our boneheaded policies, we might find that China is far more aligned to the European Union as a whole, uh, which is going to be a far bigger threat to 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 us than anything Russia would ever be. Say more about that. We created the European Union essentially. You know, the European Union is it's in a position to be a a, a, a block uh, with its own bureaucracy, with its own interest, and which might go against us someday. And that's uh, the, I, I I don't think the American realists really think about it much. You know, the the one of the not everything is about military, right? I mean. We, we are not going to war with Russia, but we are still choking them out of existence. Essentially, how are we doing that? That could that same thing could happen to us, you know. If you if you, if the if the dollar moves away from being the the reserve currency of the world, the dollar hegemony is going. All the sanctions power is gone. If 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 we create this huge block trading block in the in the in the Eurasian uh, region, which then trades with Europe, which then sanctions American companies and just push, pushes them out of 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 competition. It's gonna be a major threat, you know. So I I, I just don't I, I think we are too narrowly focused on safeguarding Ukrainian borders and promoting liberal rights in Ukraine. And that's part of the reason why and that's partly because international relations has changed as a discipline in the last 20 years anyway. We think everything about is about rights in different parts of the globe and we don't really think much about interests. So I think it's dangerous. And uh to get back to the European point, um, The thing that bothers me the most, and I don't know why it doesn't bother more people in the U.S., is um, there is this toxic combination of of sanctimony and demand from certain European sections. So on one hand, they are extremely sanctimonious about the decline of democracy and liberalism in in U.S., Mm -hmm. But in the the same breath, they are asking for... More cash. More cash (laughs) and more weapons. And when refused, they are saying, well, you should be better, you know. When I was doing a PhD, some of our friends sat together and we kind of like theorized this and gave it a name, which is not fit for civilized circles. But there is one other group of people, and I'm not going to name it, but you're smart enough to understand, who would take money from you and say exactly what you want to hear. And then when you're bankrupt, they're going to kick you out. (laughs) So... You know, we need to be far more careful. We we see Europe as this dewy-eyed place where people are just nice and walking around in the nice cafes, but they're very smart and, you know, they're essentially bankrupting us. And I don't think that's a smart idea. They're the abusive ex-girlfriend that likes to steal your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um,
1: that's all extremely terrifying. Um, I'm curious what you make of the Africa question of it all. I mean, Africa and South America, I think, are somewhat related questions when it comes to this i mean you know these these rapidly modernizing industrializing second and third world countries how do you think they play into the the global power interplay in the northern hemisphere
0: so africa is there are three things in africa which is happening one it's the youngest continent with massive uh manpower surge without jobs and without naturally without jobs means they don't have good lives and they, don't, they can't settle down, they can't have family and that's going to affect everything that you see around you. There will be hundreds and thousands of people looking for jobs um, or coming out. So one of the things that we need to do not just for the sake of Africa but for our own sake is to figure out a way so that people have good jobs and good life there and settle down. The same thing in Latin America. You know, when Max Boot wrote that article about uh, America needs to be a colonial empire, cause Max Boot has, I mean, as a historian, obviously, he, his idea of history is very Wikipedia level, right? So he thinks, you know, wearing a, a felt hat is, you know, being like a colonial British administrator. What he doesn't realize and what he should have said is instead of, you know, trying to change the culture of Iraq and Afghanistan, we should try and help those governments have better jobs, you know, we should we should actually be like you know the former colonial powers who were essentially a hands-off uh, in in changing culture of the of the region, but were providing good management uh, so that you know there is infrastructure and development. One of the things that China is doing by the way in Africa is they are not trying to promote LGBT rights in 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 Congo. What they're doing is figuring out a way which they can on one hand they can extract minerals and material from Africa. And on the other hand, they can provide jobs for you know for their for their bases uh, and buy out land essentially. Um, now I'm not saying we need to be like China, but it's a but it, it's something to think about. Um, the second thing which uh, we need to worry about is obviously uh, Asia, the Asian power balance. I think we are again doing the same uh, logical folly about thinking about Asia like it's Europe. I mean we we do, we don't have even we have to safeguard. Uh, American interests in Asia-Pacific, there are ways to do that without forward presence, without bankrupting us. So I think that's, I think, the three considerations in front of the U.S. should be, one, uh, to save our money, two, to save, uh, to have a functioning national entity with proper borders and uh, minimal interference from outside, and three, um, to survive without going to a nuclear war with any other other great powers. We need to rethink the way we used to think the Cold War, survival first. So, interesting question here uh,
2: how much do you think you know a lot of these bureaucracies that we've talked about you know um the the eu nato um you know the various things that we've undertaken um in in asia how much do you think the the atrophied muscles um have also affected um some of our english-speaking allies so canada australia new zealand yeah specifically. Is it is it a similar problem? Is it
0: to the same extent? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's part of the reason why Anglosphere countries are so woke is because they were never occupied. You know, <laughs> they never really faced... That's uh, going to be a clip right Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's true, though. I mean, think of it this way. You know, uh, the reason they haven't faced existential struggles and was under the boots of tyrannical regimes is because they think everything is tyranny. It's, 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 I mean, those are tied together. That's one of the reasons why they find every struggle everywhere in the world to be their struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they haven't really, you know, they have stopped thinking in that way, uh, where, you know, uh, where English mothers were giving birth, um, thinking of the, hearing the, the church bells because the Spanish Armada was there and they knew what was coming. So that that those you know days are gone. So naturally, uh, now someone looking at you in an elevator is is a, is a major threat to your life and liberty. <laughs> so um, so that's uh, that's one of the reasons. The second reason is um, they don't really face any threat. I mean, the the threats that is probably existential is one for Australia because it's right uh in in the in the vicinity where there is a that there is an emerging great power with a naval buildup which is far far higher in pace uh than even the anglo-german naval race in 1916. so so that's a threat but canada and you know uh, britain you know they don't they don't face the, the the kind of threat that they used to face that's part of the reason why they are so, so different now, and that's part of the... Re- and, and the second reason is obviously they know that there is someone else uh, to provide for them. You know, uh, it's a mutually understandable idea uh, that, you know, uh, they tell us good things and we give them money and we provide for their material, but we should just move away and say like, hey, you're rich enough, figure it out yourself. I mean, if you want to build up your Navy, stop funding the NHS. That's, you know, the... There was this chart that came out, I think, I, I can't remember. There was certain amount of days spending of NHS is the equivalent of one aircraft carrier. So there's your money. <laughs> do it yourself.
1: I want to ask you to prognosticate and perhaps play a little bit of armchair general. Uh, what do you think is likely to happen in Russia and Ukraine in terms of resolving the war? What do you think the worst-case scenario is that's still within the realm of possibility? And what do you think if you were you know, the commander-in-chief, the best-case scenario for resolving the conflict would be?
0: The worst-case scenario, I'd start first, because I'm a realist and a pessimist, <laughs> is obviously the extinction of human life in the, in the planet and that's well within the realm of possibility. We think of this way that we are just, you know, we're gonna bomb Russia and Russia is gonna bomb us, but that's not how it works. There are small things that spark um, uh, global wars. I mean, there's one of the things in international relations called chain-ganging, you know, when a small power essentially uh, drags a great power to war. Uh, one of the dynamic was, uh, that was evident in the First World War, for example. Um, again, I'm not saying that could happen uh, tomorrow, but there is a possibility. Think of it this way: we have people who are we are essentially providing Ukraine with targeting data. Uh, that's being a co-belligerent in 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 according to the to the laws of war. Um, there, the Russian planes and uh, American planes are moving in a very uh, closed airspace, very close to each other, and you know something might spark. There could be a, a wrong missile. A, a big, a bad target, you know, there are so many risks that's there that could just happen. And the same thing in Taiwan, for example. But again, that's a different different question. The best case scenario for Ukraine... So Ukraine's survival as an independent ent- entity is now guaranteed. Russia failed in its first uh, objective. They, they were very close to succeeding, but they failed. And in warfare, if you fail, you fail. Uh, they couldn't control the 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 airfield uh, north of Kiev yeah, during the early first phase of the war in February and they uh, th- and that kind of like took away their their idea of controlling Kiev and I think they miscalculated I think the Germans and the French were right in their calculation when they said that like you know Russia won't be able to I mean they 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 didn't believe that Russia would go for an invasion because they had ninety thousand troops and you can't control a country the size of Ukraine with ninety thousand troops you know we couldn't control Iraq with uh, one hundred and seventy thousand troops. So uh, you know, th- th- there's your first question. the The best case scenario at this point of time is number one. I don't think any of the country is willing to stop the war because both think they could reach uh, a favorable situation in, in 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 the balance of power. I think the Russians know that they can wait us out um, because of the asymmetry of interest. Like we don't re- uh, we are not. I mean, if given a choice, we don't want to go to war with Ukraine uh, with Russia on Ukraine because we simply don't have the strategic and geographic interest in defending Ukraine. We have far more geographic interest in defending the English Channel than Ukraine. Uh, so that's one thing which the Russians know. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, know that they can just uh, spend money on Vogue and they're going to keep on getting military uh, and manpower and money from from the U.S. So they know that they can continue because as long as they're getting money, they're, they're going to continue to fight. What's different, though, is one side of the of the belligerence uh, is dependent on the generosity of foreign great powers, and that's Ukraine. So essentially, we have the leverage. And in my opinion, we should use that leverage to figure out a way to negotiate a settlement. Because at the end of the day, it's a stalemate. It's only going to continue. We can think of it in a more cynical way of continuing to bleed Russia. But think of the broader perspective. Uh, Russia is gonna continue. We, we can't break Russia down. You know, they're gonna continue to trade with China, they're gonna continue to trade with, they're even selling, you know, oil to to European Union. So uh, Russia is not gonna dissolve, it's gonna remain there, we're just gonna keep pushing it away towards towards China, we're gonna create this Eurasian bloc. And on the other hand, there will be people dying. Now, realists obviously don't care about people dying, but it's a valid concern. You know I mean, there is no point in continuing a war which uh, would uh, lead to more human life loss. And the second thing is, we are the ones who are paying for it. So, you know, how long do you want to pay? 40 billion, 50 billion, 100? What's the stopping line? There needs to be... Someone needs to come and sit together and say like, hey, this is where we stop, because we have other things to think about. We need to focus on China, we need to focus on the southern border, we need to focus on inflation. You know, there are people in this country who are dying, of, of drug abuse, we need to think about those people. We need to think about jobs. We need to think about the hundreds and thousands of people who are going to take our cities, you know. And and you know, uh, Trump wanted what five billion for the southern border. I don't think that would have been possible. But compare that amount to the ones that we are spending in Ukraine. Where is this money coming from? You know, you're printing money during an inflation. Obviously, it would just increase inflation. Uh, so. The the best way out of it is a negotiated settlement with Ukraine as a buffer zone, uh, neither part of Russian, uh, you know, uh, sphere. Uh, sorry, part of Russian sphere, but not part of Russia. Um, but also not part of the European Union. Kind of like a, a middle ground in between. I think one of the dangers that we are seeing these days is the uh, collapse of neutral spaces. I think that's always dangerous in international relations. Like you know, even during the Second World War, we had Sweden and. You know, all these powers in Switzerland and, you know, after the Second World War, we had Austria. Uh, I think neutral spaces are important. I think buffer zones are important. There's a, not just because they're, they're defensible buffers, but also during a crisis, those are the places where people go and talk it out. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the. Yeah, the fact that Switzerland has broken its neutrality. Yeah. I mean, Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, we only have Austria in a way. And Vienna used to be like, during the Cold War, it used to be like the spy capital, essentially. That's where the people used to go and hash it out. We are just losing neutral spaces. Uh, so that's not a good thing.
1: Well, of all these scenarios, what do you think is most likely to happen, given what you know about the American foreign policy ruling class?
0: Well, I think things need to change. I think there is a hope uh, that, that there's a hint of change that we are seeing. One of the things which I constantly mentioned to some of our Colleagues on the left side of the realist spectrum, is that realism will not come from the left, you know, because realism again, this is to, to go back to the first question. Realism is a theory which is reactionary by its very nature. You don't liberals think a,
1: will not rest until the pride, pride flag flies over Pyongyang they, and Tehran they, they, and, they, they and they Beijing. Cannot, they cannot.
0: I mean, one of the things that <laughs> Mearsheimer wrote in his book is. Um, liberalism the internal contradiction of liberalism is the fight between particularist ideas and universalism mm-hmm. and and they will you know they if you think that every individual is equal and they have all their equal rights that's one thing to think about but the moment you start thinking that you have a have a uh, a need to uh, ensure that they all have their rights in all over the globe you are in for a global war you know you have to fight in every corner of the globe for this mutating idea of rights, I mean, there are newer rights coming up every single day. If you have to ensure rights in the world, you have to constantly fight. You know, there is that's not realism. Realism is about you know having very narrow national interest. You have to be narrow in your idea of what constitutes your nation and what are the very specific defensible interests there, uh, and then let people decide about other things. You know, that that's that's all your concern. So, the hint of hope there is you know all the people who are opposed. To the, to the constant Ukrainian aid are from the right. There are 57, I think, uh, congressmen or senators who uh, opposed the the constant, the, the money. It's not enough. Um, you know, there is still that edifice, which is kind of like from the, you know, the uh, war on terror days, um, mm-hmm. which... It's a lot higher than it would have been pre-2015. Though. A lot higher. And that's yeah. what the, you know, that's that's what, I mean, that's the hope, you know, that there is this ascending coalition who understands that, hey, I think we have done enough. We need mm-hmm. to we need to kind of like step back and decide what's good for us rather than what's good for humanity.
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully you're right, um, and we're certainly involved in that on a daily basis. Dr. Mitra, where can people keep up with everything that you're writing and working on and publishing on these issues?
0: All over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I usually tweet it out. Um, I'm, I'm kind of like a notorious. Uh, and when, when it comes to tweeting it's you know I just can't stop it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's my drug yeah. um, I but I like reading news and I tweet out my stuff
1: yeah and on Twitter you are at Mr. Matra. Mr. Maitra why Mr. not doctor
0: because I had it for a long time and when I tried to change it it was taken so, so <laughs> let it go
1: Mr. It is alright thank you for coming on our show thank, thank, you, thank you, so you for, for everything me. you do
0: thank you, thank you.
1: Hopefully y'all don't get too used to mellifluous British accents here on this show. I'm sorry. What was that word? Mellifluous? I've liter- I've been speaking the Eng- yeah. English language my whole life. Do not know that word. Yeah, never yeah, heard. And of you're it. the one who reads the books. Um, <laughs> turns out preparing for the SAT does help. Have- purpose um anyway uh thank you guys for listening as always we have a bunch of content prepared for you for the rest of the year i recently just built out the schedule through the very last episode of the year and there's just a bunch of awesome stuff that you we're did. putting on there yes uh you see the, <laughs> yeah. go, go look at the whiteboard i'm gonna get All right, back in the, look look at the whiteboard, yeah. um it's gonna be great and we're really looking forward to, to delivering strong content capital c register trademark to you guys for the rest of the year Uh, If you could be so kind and rate and review this podcast five stars, I know I ask every week, but perhaps this week it will come into your heart to take a little bit of time and do it. Either that or we'll pull your IP address and I'm going to show up at your house. Uh, No, that will not happen, in fact. Um, You know, Mr. Feds, uh, that that is not occurring. Um, anyway, uh, thank you guys as always for listening. Go to AmericanMoment.org to see everything else, and we will see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production, filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is "A Minor Struggle" by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.